Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew 19, 13. Our passage for today is Matthew 19, 13 to 36. And let's begin our time uh, by reading that passage together. Matthew 19, 13 to 36. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Uh, Back when I was a new believer, I attended a discussion group on Thursday mornings for uh, men who were interested in theology. Uh, The discussion group was led by my pastor at the time, a man by the name of Byron Yawn. One week, Byron gave us an assignment. He told us that he wanted us all Uh, to preach a sermon to the rest of the men in the group. It'd just be a short sermon, something like 15 minutes long or something like that. And we'd be given a few weeks to prepare, but he wanted us to preach. And then the rest of the group, uh, Byron included, would critique us and tell us how we did. So I got to work. I don't remember too much about that message today. I think it was from John 6. Uh, But I worked hard. And when my turn came, I got up in front of the men and I preached the very best that I knew how. And when I finished, the men started their critique. Byron Byron would uh, usually let the rest of the group uh, begin their critique and then after everyone else had weighed in, he'd stand up and give his opinion on the message. And at first, it seemed like I did great. The, The basic consensus from the rest of the men was that I nailed it. I grasped the basic sense of the passage well. I communicated my point clearly. My delivery delivery was strong. Uh, My illustrations were well thought out. Uh, Basically, I had ripped the cover off the ball, home run, in their mind. And then Byron got up. There was a whiteboard at the front of the room. Uh, Byron walked over to it. And oddly enough, he began to draw a stick figure on that whiteboard. And he said, do you know what this is, Ryan? I shook my head. No, no, I don't know what that is. He said, this is a straw man. 
he said. And then he started scribbling a bunch of lines over that stick figure, and he said, this is a straw man on fire. He says, and that was what you basically just did in your message. You set up that straw man, and then you torched him. And over the next couple of minutes, he continued to deconstruct my sermon and show me what was wrong with it. And at the end of it, he told me, he said, don't go burning straw men. There were words that I'll never forget. And since that morning, I've tried to heed that advice. I worked very hard to avoid straw man arguments. If you're not sure what I mean about a straw man, uh, a straw man is a type of logical fallacy. Basically, it assigns an argument to an opponent that the opponent never actually claimed, and then in an effort to discredit that opponent, it ruthlessly tears that argument apart. It's smoke. It's a mirage. A straw man is a false enemy, one without substance, one who's created simply to make its opponent look good when it's annihilated. That's why the rest of the men praised my sermon that morning, and Byron didn't. They couldn't see that the opponent I was fighting was a straw man. So to them, I looked good. I lined up my enemy and obliterated him. Byron, though he knew better, he could see I was fighting a ghost. So he was thoroughly unimpressed. We like to do this. We like to make straw men out of our enemies. We like to make them an exaggerated caricature of who they really are. After all, that makes them easier to defeat. It's hard to actually think about another's per, another person's position and treat it fairly. The easier thing to do is just to exaggerate that position to the point that it looks foolish and then attack that. It doesn't take a whole lot of energy to do that. It makes things simpler, too. It makes things easier to understand. That's one of the reasons why we like to make straw men out of our enemies. We're mentally lazy. But probably even more so than this, we like to make straw men out of our enemies because then they're a whole lot less threatening. Truth is, there are a lot of times when our opponents make a good point. They say something, do something that we don't know how to refute. And so what do we do to salve our conscience? We build a straw man. And then we take that down. This is another reason why we like to turn our enemies into straw men, because then the things they say are a lot less convicting. We don't have to change our positions. We don't have to grow. We don't have to learn. Don't have to admit our fault or admit that we don't know everything, so long as our enemies are straw men. We can say to ourselves, you know, I'm sure glad that I'm not like that tax collector over there, as long as they're a straw man. And we can go away feeling good about ourselves. I would venture to say that for most of us, the rich young ruler is a straw man. That's what dawned on me as I was studying this passage this week. We come across this story about this man coming up to Jesus, asking about what good thing he must do to inherit eternal life, claiming to have kept the law, and we go... Oh, oh, I know the answer to this one. This one's easy. And that's only because we've made him a cartoon. He's a flannel board character in our minds. The version of this man that we create in our minds is an exaggeration of the man who came to Jesus inquiring about eternal life. And the thing is, we want it that way. Because what Jesus challenges this man with, and what he says to the disciples when he walks away, That's easier to swallow 
if he's a straw man. If we tell ourselves that this man is a smug, self-important, self-righteous hypocrite, then we can all say to ourselves, what an important spiritual truth that doesn't apply to me. I'm so glad that Jesus taught this to all those people like this man so they can wrestle with it. We keep the impact of Jesus' words at arm's distance so long as we can convince ourselves that we have nothing in common with this man and the challenge that Jesus lays out here can just sort of just gently brush off us like the wind blowing through the trees. Truth is, though, this man's not a cartoon. And I would venture to say that he is far, far more like us than most of us probably realize. And the impact of what Jesus says here, it sinks deep. Matthew lays out his gospel in sections. And each section contains a narrative portion where a series of events kind of line up along a particular theme uh, and take place before those events are then ultimately explained in this extended discourse from Jesus on that topic. That's what the gospel of Matthew is really focused on more than anything else. It's focused on the teachings of Jesus. Well, we're in the third week of a new section of the Gospel, which I've entitled, The Returning King. In the last section, Jesus responded to Israel's rejection of His message by establishing the group of witnesses who would carry on His mission after His death and resurrection. Uh, Peter's declaration of faith in Jesus in Matthew 16 served as the climax of that section, and really of the entire Gospel as a whole. And it was after that point that Jesus began to tell His disciples how it was necessary for Him to go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, and then rise again. Now in this section, Jesus begins to focus on life between His resurrection and His return. He's already told His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and what must happen to him there. They don't want to accept that, but Jesus has insisted he must suffer and die. And so what he wants to do now is prepare them for life in a post-resurrection world. Now I should be clear, this isn't the only goal or objective that Jesus would have been accomplishing at this portion of his ministry. For example, if we were to turn to the Gospel of John, essentially all of John 7 through 11, apparently occurred between the last verse of Matthew 18 and the first verse of Matthew 19. So Jesus going up to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles in the October before His death, His encounter with the Pharisees in the temple where He says, Before Abraham was, I am. His healing of the blind man in John 9. Even the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11. That's all occurred between Jesus' instruction on forgiveness in Matthew 18 and His instruction on divorce in Matthew 19. For that matter, the commissioning of the 70, the story of the Good Samaritan, as well as every other event between Luke 10 and Luke 18, that's all occurred between Jesus' instruction on forgiveness in Matthew 18 and His instruction on divorce in Matthew 19. Eight chapters of Luke's Gospel. So there are a lot of different events that have occurred, are occurring, at this stage in Jesus' ministry. And there are a lot of different kinds of teaching to accompany these events. But the events and lessons that Matthew is interested in are the ones that are going to culminate in Jesus' message about the timing of His return, the Olivet Discourse of Matthew 24 and 25. We'll see that even as Matthew touches on the hostility 
that Jesus faced at this point in His ministry. The focus will be on the impact that those encounters are to have on His disciples after His resurrection and before His return. What this means is that the lessons of this section will be essentially theological in nature. For instance, we'll see Jesus continue to explain why He's rejected, and we'll see Him explain how that rejection plays out in light of His future return. For example, He'll he'll talk about the timing of His return, He'll prepare His disciples for His return in that sense by setting them on a timeline so they can orient themselves around the the role that they're to play in the coming kingdom of heaven. But at the same time, many of the lessons that we're going to see in this section will have to do with the values or the priorities that the disciples are to practice in the interval between Jesus' resurrection and His return. We've already seen this come into play over the past couple of weeks as we looked at Jesus' teaching on divorce. After Jesus lays out his teaching on divorce, the disciples say, well, if this is so, then it would be better not to get married. And Jesus says, yeah, true, and there are those who are eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, but not everyone can accept this, so let he who is able to accept this, accept it. That seems like an odd statement to make, but as we go digging in the rest of the New Testament for further clarification, we find Paul making a similar remark in 1 Corinthians 7. And in that passage, Paul explains that the reason why it is Uh, better for a person to remain single if possible, is because, quote, the present form of this world is passing away, and uh, and to, quote, secure their undivided devotion to the Lord. In other words, it's not that singleness is better because there's something inherently pleasing about singleness or because the one who does that is more serious about their faith than the one who doesn't. No, the reason Paul explains is because the time is short and it allows a person to be completely and wholly focused on the work of the gospel. That's one of the implications of Christ's resurrection. Jesus has been raised from the dead with all authority and power. This means that He can come back and judge the earth at any time. Therefore, so much as is possible, set your focus entirely on the work of the gospel. The current form of this world is already passing away. There may not be a tomorrow. So stop living as if this world around you is going to just keep on going forever and ever and start living in light of the fact that Jesus could come back like today. This is one of the values that Jesus is teaching His disciples at this time. The supreme urgency of the gospel. The priority of the kingdom of heaven. Well, it's really the same with today's passage. That's what Jesus is doing here, too. He's teaching the disciples about the kind of thinking that they need to carry with them on their mission. If you noticed, when we read our passage just a moment ago, I kind of cut the story of the rich young ruler in half. We stopped in verse 26, uh, right before Peter asks this follow-up question about the types of rewards that he and the other disciples will receive for their willingness to follow Christ. And I did that because I think that's probably the best way to understand this passage. Your Bible, of course, uh, has chapter divisions, and depending on the version you use, it may even have paragraph divisions as well. I use an ESV, and that that stands for English Standard Version, if you're not familiar with that, but I use an ESV. And the ESV will divide up each separate event in the Gospel and give it a heading to help explain what's happening. A lot of those times, those divisions can be really helpful. In fact, I often will even plan my preaching based on those sections. Each, Each section contains a single event, and in narrative, each separate event usually indicates a separate point. So I'll often try to preach just one of those sections at a time. But as I started studying this passage, I realized that this is not the case here. This account with the children 
at the beginning of our reading, is separated off on its own. And then you have this account with the rich young ruler. And then you have Jesus' answer to Peter actually cut in half by a chapter division at the start of chapter 20. And so it can look like there are kind of three different events or concepts taking place here, and that's not what's happening. This is especially clear when Jesus ends chapter 19 by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first, before continuing in chapter 20 with a parable that concludes by saying, so the last will be first and the first last. That's clearly all one unit. Jesus' answer to Peter starts in verse 28 of chapter 19, and it continues all the way to verse 16 of chapter 20. This is true even of the account with the children in verses 13 to 14. It's actually, listen guys, it's actually part of the account of the rich young ruler. It's the setting for this event. It even explains it. Jesus lays his hands on the children. He goes away, and behold, verse 16, a man comes up to him asking, what good must I do to have eternal life? Matthew draws us right back into the story, even as it's wrapping up. This is all one long section with one common theme, which is the lowly will enter into heaven before the great. The lowly will enter into heaven before the great. That's the value, the new value that Jesus is teaching here. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. And he does this in two parts. First, he explains why this is so. Why the first will be last and the last first. That's what we see in our passage today. The contrast between the children and the rich young ruler explains why the first will be last and the last first. So that's one part of Jesus' explanation of this concept. He explains why the first will be last and the last first through the events of verses 13 to 26. The second part then starts in verse 27, and it continues through chapter 20, verse 16. There Jesus explains the consequences of this reversal. Peter starts by asking this question about rewards in verse 27, and Jesus' answer goes all the way through his parable of the day laborers in chapter 20. In that portion of the passage, Jesus explains how rewards will be distributed based on this idea that the last will be first and the first last. So this is all one long section. And it starts with this group of children that are brought to Jesus. And I'm just going to cut to the chase and state up front that contrary to how this passage is often interpreted, uh, Jesus is not really commenting on whether or not children will go to heaven here. When people talk about what happens to children when they die, this is one of the passages that will often be brought up. Jesus says in verse 14, with reference to the children that are coming to him, that the, children, uh, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Often people will go to this passage and say, see, Jesus says here that kids go to heaven. But this isn't Jesus' point at all. Now, that's not to say that children don't go to heaven. I'm just, I'm just saying that that's a whole different issue, different discussion for a different passage at a different time. It's not what Jesus is addressing here. The issue that Jesus is addressing comes back in verse 13, where people are bringing children to Jesus, and the disciples are actually rebuking them for it. That's the problem here. The, people, uh, the disciples are telling people, hey, people, Lay off it with the kids already. Jesus doesn't have time for this stuff. He's too important for it. Rabbis, especially famous rabbis, were major VIPs in their culture. 
They didn't just hang out with anyone. They hung out with the influential, the important. And the disciples at this point, they understand that they're dealing with more than just a rabbi. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Davidic king. In fact, he's the son of God. Well, kids are the most, were among the most insignificant members of their society. And so the disciples see these people bringing children to Jesus, and they think they're doing Jesus a favor by telling these people, these people who want this famous rabbi, this miracle worker, to come and bless their children, the disciples think they're doing Jesus a favor, favor by telling these types of people, look, beat it. Jesus doesn't have time for this type of stuff. I mean, who do you think you're dealing with here? Some small-time country rabbi? Don't you know who this is over here? This is the Messiah, so cut it out already. Jesus, Jesus is too important for this. They think these kids aren't worthy for Jesus to give them the time of day. And this isn't true. And so Jesus tells the disciples, hey guys, stop it. Let them come forward. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, he says. And he explains why. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And that comparison is important. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Those like this. The disciples think that these children are too insignificant, too lowly, too unimportant to be worthy of Jesus' time. And Jesus says, actually, the kingdom of heaven is going to be populated by those like these children. And his point is that the lowly, actually, the insignificant, the unimportant, they're going to be the ones that will populate the kingdom of heaven. They're not unworthy of Jesus' presence. They're His people, actually. So the disciples shouldn't hinder these children. They should let them come forward. So understand, Jesus isn't saying anything directly about the spiritual state of the children in this scenario. To some degree, He's not even making the same point uh, that He made back in chapter 18 when He told the disciples that one must humble himself like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. The point here isn't about what the disciples must do to enter the kingdom. It's about the type of people they must be willing to accept. As it stands, the disciples would have paid little attention to a child or a slave or for that matter, a woman. These were second class citizens in their society. And so in the disciples' mind, they weren't really worth the time of day. Jesus is showing them that this kind of thing is completely backwards. Actually, Jesus says, these are the ones you need to be paying attention to because these are exactly the type of people who will believe and enter into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus was right, by the way. The early church was mocked. It was was known as a people that was populated principally by slaves, women, and children, and the Roman world mocked them for it. For example, speaking of Christians, the Greek philosopher Celsus once said this. He says there, referring to Christians, their injunctions are like this. Let no one educated, no one wise, no one sensible draw near, for these abilities are thought by us to be evils. But as for anyone ignorant, anyone stupid, anyone uneducated, Anyone who is a child, let him come boldly. By the fact that they themselves admit that these people are worthy of their God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, dishonorable, and stupid, and only slaves, women, and little children. That was the early Roman world's response to the church, because this is who the church was made up of. 
the lowly. Paul tells us that this is actually how God intends to build the church, not through the high and mighty in society, but through the lowly. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29, he says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Jesus is preparing His disciples for this outcome in this account. He's telling them, listen, instead of sending the lowly away, you better start paying attention to them because they're your future disciples. That's the point of this encounter. It was meant to demonstrate that the lowly should not be turned away, ignored, because they were the ones who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. This point is then amplified in the encounter with the rich young ruler, which is this encounter that illustrates for the disciples why the children should not be ignored. Now, I think the way we typically approach this passage is something like this. This man comes to Jesus, and he asks him, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So this is a guy who is clearly trying to earn salvation, we say. He thinks that he's just... uh, If he's just good enough, then God will accept him on the basis of his righteousness, and he'll go to heaven. Jesus, of course, knows this isn't the case. So what he sets out to do is to draw out this man's sin. This man thinks he's good enough to go to heaven. Jesus wants to show him that he's not, that he needs a Savior. And so he baits the man. He says, look, you know what the Bible says, right? Just keep the commandments. That's the setup. Jesus knows that no one can go to heaven by keeping the commandments. So he's setting this guy up by putting an impossibly high standard before him so that the man can finally recognize his sin and go, but wait a second, this means I can't be good enough to go to heaven. And then Jesus will say, exactly, there is no good thing that you need to do to get to heaven, you just need to believe. And so Jesus baits the man. He says, keep the commandments. The man says, which ones? And Jesus goes, oh, you know, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, honor your father, mother, love your neighbor like yourself. You know, all of them. And then the man says, well, really? Is that all? Well, I've already done that. As if he's performed all the commandments perfectly. And of course, we know better. We know no one can actually do that. And so we're saying, no way. Wow. I mean, how blind is this guy? He hasn't kept all the commandments. Nobody has kept all the commandments. Get him, Jesus. Expose that fraud. And of course, Jesus knows all this too. So he sets out to expose this man's error by going after the one command that he most definitely hasn't kept, and that's coveting. So still playing the game, Jesus says, all right, you've done well. But you know, if you really want to have eternal life, then you have to sell your things to the poor and follow me. The idea, once again, is that Jesus is going right after this man's heart, and he's doing it to show him the one aspect of the law that he hasn't kept. And this, in turn, will expose this man's sin. The man then realizes Jesus' point when he says this. He is covetous, but he can't give up his things, and so he goes away sorrowful and unforgiven. Point being, we're tempted to think that this man has a problem with self-righteousness. And that this story, therefore, is about Jesus exposing this man's self-righteousness. I know that's what I've typically thought of this man. 
I've thought he's, this is a guy who's so arrogant that he simply cannot see that he's a sinner in need of grace. But as I studied the passage this week, it dawned on me that this isn't who this man is. That version of this man is a straw man. He's a decoy, actually. He's a, he's a, he's a cartoonish decoy at that, which we throw up there to convince ourselves that Jesus' words here are for other people. People like this man who try to think that they have no sin. It's not for us. But they are for us. These words are for us. And this man is far, far more like us than I think you may realize. Do you know, as I studied this week, what I realized, Jesus never comments on in this passage. You know what Jesus never comments on in this passage? Self-righteousness. Jesus never comments on this man's self-righteousness. Not once. In fact, even in the explanation, after the man leaves, Jesus doesn't say a word about his self-righteousness. Listen, he doesn't say to the disciples in verse 23, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a self-righteous person enter the kingdom of heaven. No, he says a rich person. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus never says that this man's self-righteousness was the stumbling block. Money was the stumbling block. This man doesn't go away sorrowful because he realized his sin, but failed to see the hope that he could have in Christ. No, Matthew says he went away sad because he owned many possessions. Jesus told him he had to sell his things, and he didn't want to do that. Very clearly, it's his things that are the stumbling block, not his righteousness. In other words, we're reading our theology into this passage. What Jesus exposes in this story is not this man's self-righteousness, but his idolatry. Let me say that again. What Jesus exposes in this story is not this man's self-righteousness, but his idolatry. But we don't want Jesus to address idolatry, especially not the idolatry of money, and especially not when he's saying that that kind of idolatry can keep us from getting into the kingdom of heaven, because that's something we all struggle with. And so we choose instead to create a straw man. This is a man that thinks he's kept the law, we say. And we comfort ourselves with the thought that we're nothing like him. Could I propose that this man is actually pretty humble? Or at least more humble than we give him credit for? So does he come to Jesus asking about how to earn eternal life? Yes, it's right there in verse 16. He says, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Do you know what that makes him? Average. All that means is this is a man who subscribed to the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, which were widely regarded to be the teachers of Israel, so he trusts the nation's teachers, the ones who made it their business to study God's law, when they told him, you have to be righteous to get into heaven. Where's the pride in that? What else would you expect a humble man to do? Is he supposed to ignore their teaching? Understand, Jesus came down hard on the religious leaders precisely because he understood that people like this man were dependent on them to show them the way into heaven. And then they slammed the door shut in their faces. Do you know what we overlook? In verse 20, 
this man claims, claims to have kept the law. So at least in his mind, he's done what he's supposed to do. And yet he still comes to Jesus saying, can you tell me how to have eternal life? I don't know about you, but this strikes me as a man who can already sense that something isn't right. He's doing what he's been told by the scribes and the Pharisees, but he's doing the math, and he can tell it doesn't add up. It feels empty to him. He knows it doesn't make sense. And this is highlighted by his question in verse 18. This guy asks, Teacher, what good thing must I do to to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, Why do you ask me what is good? There's only one who is good. Basically, he deflects the question. He says, God's the one that's good, right? So why are you asking me? What did he say? And Jesus says, If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Obey God's law, Jesus says. And listen, there's nothing about self-justification in that answer. Yes, a person could try to justify themselves by obedience to the law, but at the same time, guess how faith was exercised in the, New, in the Old Testament? By obedience to the law. That's all Jesus is telling this guy to do, to exercise his faith through obedience to the law, obey the commands. But this guy looks at this, and he knows his disobedience. He knows he doesn't do it perfectly, and that's evident by the question he asks next. He asks Jesus, which ones? Listen, that's not the type of question a self-righteous person asks. If this man believed he kept the law perfectly, then Jesus could say, keep the commands, and all he would say is, great. So what else? Because he'd think he's already got it covered. This man doesn't think that. According to the rabbinic calculation, there were 613 separate commandments in the Pentateuch. Jesus says, keep the commands, and this man knows that's impossible. And so he asks Jesus to clarify, to be more specific. But which ones, he says? Could you you be a little bit clearer on that? We can't keep them all. Which ones? Jesus names essentially the second half of the Ten Commandments with the summary statement of love your neighbor as yourself thrown in. And the man says, okay, I've done that. What else? What else? Now we read that and assume that this man is claiming perfect obedience. Again, I think that's a straw man. Paul himself could say in Philippians 3.6 that he was blameless as to righteousness under the law. And I don't think that we would assume that Paul was claiming sinlessness when he said that. All this has to mean is that this man has observed that portion of the law. No, maybe he hasn't done it perfectly, but he's still observed it faithfully from his youth up. He's a law keeper. He's a God-fearer. He's a man who takes God's word seriously. And listen, even still, he's not assuming that that's enough. He asks, what else? What do I still lack? And you know what Mark says at this point in the story? In his gospel, at this point in the story, he says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Guys, you understand this isn't some smug, arrogant Pharisee. Nothing in this story indicates that. Do you know who this guy is? He's the humble, obedient church kid. This is the kid who grew up with an interest in God who kept going to church when his friends walked away. When he was in college and his friends were out partying on the weekend, he stayed in, not because he was a Pharisee, but because he feared God and he didn't want to sin. He didn't rebel against authority. 
He submitted. And he tried to be the most faithful man that he knew how to be. He takes God's word seriously. And he fears for his soul. And that's manifested by the fact that even after he's done all these things, he's still seeking Jesus out. He wants to be sure. Do you understand? This man goes away crushed and distressed at the end of the story because he earnestly wants eternal life. Jesus sees this man and he recognizes all of that. And his heart is warmed. He doesn't go, you know, what audacity, what arrogance. No, this is a man that Jesus has an affection for. Jesus actually likes this guy. And in this respect, this man is really the prime candidate for discipleship. If the children were the nobodies, this guy is the exact opposite of that. He's young, Matthew tells us. He's powerful. Luke says he's some kind of a ruler. He's obviously rich. But most of all, he's moral. Think of the young man who walks into your church and he's handsome, well-dressed, well-mannered, intelligent and well-spoken. And not just that, but he's humble. He's teachable. He says things like, yes, ma'am, and no, sir. He's polite. He's kind. He's winsome. He's the kind of guy that people drool over and think, wow, I really hope he sticks around and becomes a part of our church. The future is bright for him. There's so much the Lord could do through a guy like that. Think of that guy. And you have a picture of the rich young ruler. He's the perfect candidate for discipleship. Whereas the disciples would keep the children away, this is the kind of guy that when he walks up and says, I'd like to speak to Jesus, the disciples would be practically tripping over themselves, going, absolutely, right this way, sir. Showing them right right to the front. I mean, honestly, he's everything that that the disciples were not. But he's got a fatal flaw. And it's exposed when Jesus invites him to become a disciple. This man wants eternal life, and up to this point, he's passed all the tests. He fears God. He's humble. He's obedient. The the ingredients are there, so to speak. Now all he must do is exercise faith in God's Messiah. So Jesus tells him, if you would be perfect, and the word there basically means mature or complete. So again, the, the raw material is there, but if you would be complete, Jesus says, Sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now this, this is significant. Do you know what this is? This isn't some kind of test aimed at exposing this man's sin. And I say this because this requirement that Jesus makes... For this man to surrender everything to follow him, this isn't something that Jesus makes just for this man, right? He requires this of all of his disciples. In fact, in Luke 14, 33, Jesus even says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, literally all of his possessions, cannot be my disciple. This is a demand that Jesus ultimately makes of all of his disciples. It doesn't mean literal selling to the poor, but a letting go 
of the idolatry of money, setting that thing aside. So this isn't some contrivance merely aimed at exposing sin. This is a genuine call for discipleship. And is it called a personal discipleship in particular? You know when else you've seen this type of language? Come, follow me. How about Matthew 4? Peter and Andrew are casting their nets into the sea, and Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And Matthew says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. How about Matthew 9? When Jesus approaches Matthew in his tax collecting booth and says, follow me, and Matthew notes, he rose and followed him. He left it all behind right away. That's what Jesus is doing here. Here is this perfect candidate for discipleship. Jesus has a warm affection for him. So he extends the same offer to him that he offered to the rest of the disciples. That's why Peter says down in verse 27, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? It's the same offer. And Peter remembers that when Jesus extended this offer to him, he left his nets right away and followed Jesus. I mean, Jesus is offering this man the moon. He's saying, come, be my disciple. Live with me. Follow me. But to have it, he explains. This man has to leave his old lifestyle behind. He can't be the rich young ruler anymore. He's going to have to travel with Jesus. And when Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's going to be sent across the world for the sake of the gospel. Again, this new age that's coming about is going to demand a radical transformation of priorities. And for this man in particular, it's going to mean leaving behind the comfort and luxury that he has enjoyed in order to serve Christ. He's got to let all of that go. Now to be clear, there's no merit in this if this man does this. Jesus definitely makes a demand, but it's not a work. It's an expression of faith. What Jesus is demanding is personal commitment. This man must trade in his old identity for the new one that he will receive in Christ. He must become Christ's disciple. He must be committed to serve Christ and leave that former manner of life behind. That's all this is. And this is what discipleship means. It means commitment to serve and worship Christ. That's all that Jesus is demanding. Again, it's what he demands of every would-be disciple. It's like he told his disciples back in chapter 16, verses 24 to 25, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is amazing. Here's this man, face to face with the Messiah, and the Messiah is saying, I like you. Come and follow me. And he can't do it. He can't do it. And why not? Matthew explains it very simply. He says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's his money. It's his stinking money. He wants life, and he wants it badly. But not if it costs that. This is astonishing. As far as prospective disciples go, this guy has it all. He has everything going for him, save for this one fatal flaw, his wealth. That's really the only obstacle, and yet it's enough to keep him from following the Messiah. Now you think about that. If wealth was a sufficient obstacle to discipleship for this man, 
This man who has a sincere desire for eternal life. This man who has been humble and a faithful keeper of the law from his youth up. If that's a sufficient obstacle for this man, then we really have to ask ourselves, is it even possible for the rich, any of them, to exercise saving faith? And incidentally, Jesus turns to his disciples after this man leaves, and he says, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Wealth is just this gigantic obstacle to discipleship. Again, money is is so powerful, so alluring. It promises so much happiness and joy right now that it's practically impossible for the one who has it to hold it loosely for the sake of Christ. It's so powerful that Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than it is for the wealthy to forsake the allure of earthly treasure for the riches of Christ. This man is an illustration of that point. If this man can't walk away from his riches for the sake of Christ, then who can? And that, ladies and gentlemen, is why you don't prevent the little children from coming to Jesus. That's why you don't ignore the lowly. It's because, humanly speaking, it is comparatively easier for the person with nothing to lose to make the kind of wholehearted commitment that Jesus demands than it is for the person who has everything to lose. Now, to be clear, I don't mean to take the divine element out of this, and neither does Jesus. After all, in verse 25, the disciples are astonished by what Jesus says about the rich, and they ask, who then can be saved? And more than likely, they're coming at this from this perspective that the rich were especially blessed by God. That was the common belief in their day. Riches were a sign of God's blessing. And so they think if the rich can't get into heaven, then who can? And Jesus answers by saying, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And listen, that statement is not just made with reference to the rich. The disciples are starting with the assumption that the rich have the best shot. So going from greater to lesser, they say, if not the rich, then what sort of person will be saved? And Jesus answers by saying, well, according to human will, no one. No one. There isn't a particular demographic that has an inside track. But with God's grace, salvation can't happen. And this is important, by the way. While Jesus is commenting on riches here, he isn't isolating this discussion to wealth. When Jesus says, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven, he could have just as easily said, an intelligent person, or a powerful person, or a popular person. There are all kinds of other stumbling blocks out there that can keep a person from entering into the kingdom other than wealth. And everyone is going to experience one or another of these stumbling blocks as they weigh the cost of following Christ. And it is only by the power of God that anyone will choose to forfeit their idol for the sake of knowing Christ. Mammon isn't the only idol, it's just one of many. And all do need the power of God to quicken their hearts and overcome their idolatry. But that being said, the point here is that those who have more, humanly speaking, have a comparatively harder time getting in, actually, than the lowly. You see this rich young ruler, you set him, this man who's, who's probably loved and respected by his community, who's living the good life, you set him against fishermen like Peter and Andrew, or you set him against a tax collector like Matthew for that matter, and it's obvious who has more to lose. 
by following Jesus. It's the rich young ruler. I mean, take Matthew. Matthew, it seems, was probably much like the rich young ruler in many respects when Jesus called him. There's reason to believe that he had gone out to John's baptism, so this was a man who recognized his sin, who desired eternal life to enter into the kingdom of heaven. In his heart, he was very much like the rich young ruler, just with a shorter track record. Because of his lifestyle, he really had nothing to lose when it came to follow Christ. He's sitting there in his tax cloth, his tax booth, mourning the kinds of, of choices that he's made in his life. Jesus walks up to him and he says, follow me. And Matthew has to weigh his options. Well, that's a relatively easy choice to make. Yeah, he had to give up his money. But money wasn't bringing Matthew any happiness. It would have been pretty easy for him to walk away from that lifestyle. It's different for the rich young ruler, though. His lifestyle was pretty perfect. His life was pretty good as it was. For him, following Jesus would mean a tremendous leap of faith. So even though these two men would have had very much been the same with regard to their interest in the kingdom of heaven, it was comparatively easier for Matthew to make that choice than it was for the rich young ruler because there was less to lose. Wealth and respect and power were therefore more of a curse to the rich young ruler than they were a blessing because it made the decision to follow Christ that much more difficult. And this was Jesus' point with the children. This works the same way with children. You know that, right? Yes, they may be lowly, but guess what? Their lowliness actually makes them more receptive to the kinds of choices that must be made for the sake of the gospel. Have you ever wondered, for instance, why, generally speaking, most people who come to Christ do so before they graduate from college? I forget the exact statistic, but I remember coming across this at some point not too long ago. It said that most people who convert to Christianity do it before the age of 22 or 23. And I think that experience testifies to this point as well. I would bet that most of the people in this room either converted in their youth or they grew up going to church. Do you know why that is? Jesus shows us in this passage. The reason is because kids have less to lose. They're at the beginning of their life. So there's less to walk away from in order for them to follow Christ. But for someone who's 40, who's made a lot of decisions in their life and their unbelief, it's different. Jesus is going to turn their life upside down. So even if they're interested in spiritual things, they'll pause to weigh the cost a lot longer than a child will. And very often, they'll just simply walk away. And you can say that for virtually anyone who is great in this world. The wealthy, sure, but the esteemed, the powerful, the intelligent, basically all the types of people that church leaders fawn over, they're the ones who have the most to lose. And so they'll often be the most resistant to the gospel. Meanwhile, the lowly, the least desirables, they have nothing to lose. And so they're more willing to entertain making the kind of commitment that Jesus demands. And so heaven, Jesus explains, it really belongs to the children more than it does the rich young rulers of the world. Understand, it isn't going to be the high and mighty that are going to make up the majority of the kingdom of heaven. No, heaven will be populated by and large by the lowly, the insignificant. Again, Paul reminds the Corinthians, not many of you 
were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring the nothing, the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now again, please don't misunderstand me here when I say this. The point of all of this is not to ignore those who have much. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying don't waste your time on the rich. Again, with God, all things are possible. Rather, the point is that you need to pay attention to those who have little. Don't ignore them. Don't think that they're insignificant. Believe it or not, they're actually in a more spiritually advantageous position than you realize. So pay attention to the rich, the mighty, the noble, sure. But at the same time, do not fail to neglect the poor, the weak, the insignificant. Heaven, Jesus says, actually belongs to such as these. Now, at this point, there's a lot that we could talk about. We could talk about the way we are to regard other people in light of this truth, about the way even that we should think about money. And we'll get into some of this during our evening discussion tonight at 6 o'clock. But if there's just one thing that I would want you to consider as we close here this morning, it's this. Have you weighed the cost of following Christ? I would have you consider one more time who the rich young ruler is. He's not a straw man. He's not a smug, self-righteous Pharisee. He's a man who earnestly desires eternal life and who has been careful to observe God's word from his youth up. He fears God. But he leaves this story unforgiven. Do you understand? It's not enough to merely want to go to heaven. It's not enough to merely want eternal life. To enter into the kingdom, you must exercise faith in God's Christ. And that's not the same thing as merely knowing the Scriptures or even being obedient to God's commands. Faith means turning away from your idolatry and placing all your trust in Jesus to the degree that He has complete and total control of your life. And don't confuse me here. I'm not saying it means sinless perfection or something like that. It can sound like I'm saying that. That's not what I'm saying. All I mean is that your heart must be Uh, in your heart you must be determined to yield your life to Jesus, to give Him total control. Jesus demands this, not just of the rich young ruler, but of every one of His disciples. They must all turn their back on their idols, give up their former manner of life, and commit themselves completely to Jesus. Whoever does not take His cross and follow Me is not worthy of Me, Jesus says in Matthew 10.38. Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, he says in Luke 14.33. Jesus pays all the penalty for your sin. You contribute nothing, but he pays it for you when you turn to him in this way. When you commit to him at this level. When you become a disciple. He demands repentance, a turning away from idolatry to God, a commitment to serve and worship Christ. And that's not because repentance is a work that earns a person life before God. That's simply because you cannot desire the reconciliation that God offers in Christ while still committed to serve and worship idols. So have you done this? I know you're coming to church, but spiritually speaking, as it regards salvation, that doesn't really mean anything. The rich young ruler would go to church. And externally, he'd be an outstanding church member too. 
that he would not be one of Jesus' disciples because in his heart he would still be given to the worship of mammon. As Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. And the rich young ruler, while he could still serve Jesus in many ways, he would stop at the point that it threatened his money because that was his true master. Who is your master? Is it Jesus? Or is it something else? If you truly surrender to Christ, have you made Him the focal point of your life? Or is He merely only on the periphery? Is He merely important, but not the most important? Understand, He demands it all. So if you haven't already done so, weigh the cost. Consider what sort of idols you might have to lay down to receive the life life that's offered in Christ. And then ask yourself, is it worth it? That's the question we're going to see Jesus answer in the rest of this passage next week. Honestly, it's the part of the passage that the rich young ruler should have hung around and and listened to. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, what about us? We've done this. We've left it all behind. What's going to happen to us? And he wants to know, is it worth it? And Jesus is going to explain, absolutely. It is a steal. It's an absolute bargain to make this exchange. So if you're weighing that cost, be sure to be here for part two of this message next week. And in the meantime, let's close with prayer.